Good morning, fellowship. Been looking forward to singing with you all week. Would you stand with us? And let's sing praises to our God. Psalm 150 says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. So let's lift our voices to him as we sing. teach you a prayer that we are going to be praying, that we're going to be singing, that Mark is going to be teaching on this morning. And Mark is going to be teaching us on a biblical vision of work. So the prayer this morning is that Jesus would be at the center of our lives. So I want to teach you this prayer. I invite you to pray it with us as we sing. Jesus be the center of my life. Jesus be the center of my life From beginning to the end It will always be, it's always been you, Jesus Jesus Would you 
pray that with us, Jesus. Jesus, be the center of my life. Jesus, be the center of my life. From beginning to the end, it will always be, it's always been you, Jesus. would you take center stage this morning as we fix our eyes on you as we glorify your name together would you be praised and would we be edified by your presence by your word pray this in jesus name amen 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 and good morning everyone good morning it's great to see you great to hear from you here in the interactive part of our uh, of our deal here this morning uh, well this is abel and i'm bart and uh, we're from part of the Bentonville team. And uh, hey, we got some good stuff to tell them, Abel. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to thank y'all for uh, reserving your seats. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're done with that. So, yeah. 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 Uh, so I know there may be a couple of y'all that really enjoyed that, though. Um, and I have a plan for you. If you would like to let someone know that you're coming to church, just text Bart. Um, Come up to me. Trust me. I'll be happy to give you his cell number. And ideally, it'd be maybe late Saturday night, early morning Saturday, one, two in the morning. Just say, Bart, come into church. Mm-hmm. That would be great. I would be happy with that. Yeah, great, Abel. I see that we're off script now. And so, uh, hey, do you, is there anything else you want to tell everybody? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do have the privilege of telling you all about family camp. In 2009, uh, Sarah and I had a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and twin five-month-olds. And I went up to Becky Lentz, who was on our elementary team, I said, Becky, we're thinking about coming to family camp this, this year. And she said, are you sure about that? And I said, yeah, I, th- I think I thought it was a good idea until talking to you. And, um, and she said, y'all are going to miss a lot of the free time. And, you know, it sounds like it'd be a lot of hassle for y'all. And uh, we said, we're going for it. We want to experience community with other people. We want to start building these family memories we want to grow spiritually as a family, so we're going for it. So we showed up uh, at that first family camp for us, and um, we, we, it was a little bit of a hassle, but we had a good experience and uh, met a couple named Kevin and Karen Haney. Kevin and Karen were sitting, and they were rocking. During free time, they just rocked on a swing, and I said, where are y'all's kids? And they said, we don't know. And... <laughs> Uh, I looked at Sarah and I said, one day, one day we will be Kevin and Karen. And uh, so this year we're going back uh, with a senior, next year senior in high school, sophomore, uh, twin eighth graders, and an eight-year-old. And uh, we will rock on, uh, during free time. And we won't know where our children are. And uh, it'll be wonderful. So regardless of what season of life you're in, I highly encourage family camp. It really is a great opportunity to get connected with a bunch of other families. You get kind of that cross-generational ministry, and um, it's such a good experience. So you see up here, uh, Bentonville will be the 29th of May, Saturday, and then uh, Springdale Rogers, Rogers will be the 30th Sunday, and um, I just encourage you all to sign up. It'll be a great full day with people from our community. 
Yeah, and we can take tons of people this year, so it, it, there's really no limit. So uh, sign up. It'll be fun. Mm-hmm. Hey, we also want to tell you a little bit more about Fellowship Bentonville. We get asked about that all the time, about, hey, how's things going? How are things going, and when will we open, and uh, all that kind of stuff. And so we've got a video you can see up on the screen. This is what we call the Eagle Cam, and so you can kind of take a look at that. It's kind of fun. And uh, hey, here's what, uh, well, first let me ask, how many of you have been out to go visit at the property? Been over there? Hey, that's a lot of hands, uh, and so that, that's great. We encourage everyone to, to stop by. It's located just north of Tiger Boulevard in Bentonville. They're on McCollum Road. It's real close to I-49. In fact, you can see it from I-49 as you drive by, and maybe you've noticed that. If you do go up there, then, then here's what you'll see. Closest to the road is the first building, and that's the, the student center. Also, the offices, and there are even some meeting rooms in the second floor of that first building. You might even see that pop up here. Well, just a minute. You can see the crane right, right now. But then you, behind that is the worship center, and then the children's area behind that. And so that's kind of a little bit of orientation and we do encourage you to go by uh, to pray for the church, to pray for uh, the people that the, the Lord might bring uh, in the coming years. Mm-hmm. Last week, we visited uh, a few of our Discover small groups, Discovers, Fellowships, mm-hmm. New Member Process. And so going to these uh, small groups, we got the question, we got this multiple small groups, what are you most excited about with Fellowship Bentonville? And there really are a few things, both for this campus as well as a Bentonville campus and one, I think there's going to be an increased level of connection. I just think we're going to have the opportunity to feel like a part, like we are belonging in a, in a new way. Uh, secondly, I think we're going to have a lot of needs. I think both at this campus and in Bentonville. So the opportunity to produce and release spiritual leaders is going to get taken to another level. And then the third thing is, I think we're going to have an opportunity to be salt and light in our communities in a, in a more pointed way, where we can uh, bless our community and reach our community for Christ. So uh, we, we are blessed. This is going to be a fun time to be at Fellowship uh, Rogers and Bentonville in this next season. Bart, would you pray for us? Yeah, let's pray for today's service. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray for just what Abel's talking about, to be, that we might be salt and light here in Northwest Arkansas, at a new campus in Bentonville uh, here in just a few months, few, maybe a year, and also here in Rogers and uh, in, in everywhere that our people go. Uh, Lord, we pray for today's service as we worship together and as we study your word about work and the fact that our work matters to you. Lord, may you bless our time here together. In Christ's name, amen. 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 Would you stand with us once again as we worship? See? 
saving me. His kindness overwhelming and hope for me an end. He's never given up on me. No. And I will sing of all you've done. And I'll remember how far you carried me from beginning to continue to sing this morning, take a moment to rest in the faithfulness of God. There wasn't a day where his presence wasn't with us. The psalmist says, where can I go from your presence? And the declaration is that wherever we go, you are there. So God, may we draw near to you this morning as you draw near to us. This morning, Mark Schatzman's going to come and he's going to teach us 
on what it looks like to have a biblical view of work. And as we sing this morning, I want our focus to be on devotion to Christ. That yes, we should have a biblical view of work, but we should also have a biblical vision of all of life. And so this morning, we're going to sing a paradox. And this paradox is found in Ecclesiastes as well as all throughout Scripture. And a paradox is when you take two seemingly contradictory things and you place them side by side to explain a mystery. And so we acknowledge as believers that we can't understand the mind of God. We can't counsel Him. And we worship and we rest in the mystery of who He is and all that He has done. So the first truth, Ecclesiastes tells us that all is vanity, that everything is meaningless. And the rest of scripture says that all of life has meaning. Paul says that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So what does that mean when you place those things side by side? How can they both be true? The author of Ecclesiastes tells us at the end of the book, he says, the chief end of man is to fear God, to keep his commandments. That meaning in life is found in Christ and in Christ alone, that without him, nothing matters. Everything is meaningless. But through Christ, all of our suffering, all of our grief, all of our joy has meaning. So we're about to sing a song that says, Jesus, nothing else matters. Nothing in this world will do. Jesus, you're the center. Everything revolves around you. And we're gonna pray, Jesus, would you be the center of my life? So I believe this song and the rest of this service, we have the opportunity to fix our eyes on Jesus, to look full in his wonderful face and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So you may have experienced something like this or seen it in the movies where boy meets girl or girl meets boy and it seems like everything else melts away as the camera pans in and maybe even time slows down. And there's this moment of being captivated by beauty. And I believe in times of worship, we should have those times where we're captivated by the beauty and the goodness of God. Maybe even time slows down as the anxieties and the cares of this world melt away. But I also want to say we're not just seeking a feeling or an emotion. We aren't just seeking euphoria, but we're seeking intimacy and relationship with God that we don't just chase these moments, moment to moment, but we cultivate a relationship and that when the feelings and the emotion comes of being in his presence, we can rest, we can worship. So this morning, we come before the Lord in prayer. God, would we cultivate a relationship of intimacy and may we keep the main thing, the main thing. May our lives revolve around you. And God, may we be captivated by your beauty and your goodness. As Psalm 16 says, that in your presence there is fullness of joy and I pray that we would taste that this morning as we continue to worship through song and through your word. We sing.
Thank you. 
crucified to set me free. Now I live to be impressed. You sing that one more time with us. Make it your prayer this morning. There's no one else for me, none but Jesus. be the song of our life that in response to Christ's perfect life and his sacrifice for us on the cross and his resurrection and the promise that he is coming again we would live lives honoring and glorifying his name that we'd live lives devoted to the true thing that matters and the true thing that brings meaning to the rest of our lives, that Jesus holds all things together. May he receive all honor, glory, and praise this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Pat and Cassie, thank you. And good morning. And if you're joining us online, good morning. And thanks for staying so faithful, continuing to worship with us, even virtually. But it is so good to see so many of you back here alive. Hope you're well this morning. Hey, like every college graduate in May, Glenn graduates college with a dream. He dreams of becoming a, a great composer, but he also has a wife and responsibilities, so he takes a job. It's just a job. He's going to teach high school band until he can get his dream career booted up. But you and I know that dreams have a way of colliding with reality and with our lives, and his wife gets pregnant, and so he needs to make some extra money. And so on top of teaching high school band in the day, he takes another job at nights and weekends teaching driver's ed. And then his son is born with special needs. And for the next 30 years, Glenn teaches band during the day, teaches driver's eds on nights and weekends, and every morning he gets up and goes to work, he has this nagging feeling that he's, he's missed out. He's fallen short of living the dream until the very last day on the job. The 1995 film, Mr. Holland's Opus, is one of my favorites. I find it incredibly inspirational. At the end of the film, it shows Glenn Holland uh, finally discovering that there was dignity in his daily work all along, that actually he was a great composer in a whole different way through his job. But I also find the film tragic because what if Glenn Holland could have seen all along a, a vision of how there was something more meaningful to his work than the dream that he had constructed in his mind and his heart. How would that have changed everything? Yeah, his vision of work, well, I think it would have changed everything. No, it wouldn't have changed his job, but it would have changed him, and that would have made all the difference in the world. 
And you know what my fear is? That the church is full of Mr. and Mrs. Hollands. You know, as a pastor, my passion is to see Christians live the fullest, most purpose-filled life that God has set for them. And I believe if that's going to happen, we are going to need a better vision of work. In other words, we're going to need a biblical vision for our day job and the thing that God has given us to do. Because let's face it, everybody works, right? Everybody works. Whether you work at home as a homemaker or out of the home as a breadwinner, or maybe in that uh, wonky season in between called a professional student, everybody works. Even those who are retired know that you're still working, right? Someone got up and, and made your breakfast this morning. And you're on assignment, even as a retired person. And so if 100% of people work, and by the way, 99% of us do some work other than what we call vocational Christian ministry, that tells me that we are going to need a biblical vision for work if we're going to have any passion in the daily grind. There's an old proverb that's been commonly thrown around that says this, no one on their deathbed says, I wish I had spent more time at the office. Is that true or false? It's interesting. We assume it's true. We assume it's true because we hear it all the time. It came about in the 80s. That's the generation I left college in. And it was trying to correct and bring some balance back to baby boomer workaholism. But the reality is it's not true. It's not true because every one of us has been hardwired for impact. We have been created to work. In fact, psychologists tell us that every human being has two deep-seated needs. On one hand, there's a need for love, and on the other hand, there's a need to work. Where do we get those deep-seated needs? From the God who made us. The opening page of the Bible tells us that we are created in God's image and God is both a lover and a worker. And so therefore we've been created for relationship but also for, for impact. In fact, the very opening line of the Bible tells us something about God. It says, in the beginning, God created. He worked. He did something. In fact, you get a glimpse of even the kinds of variety of things he did in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man, mankind became a living being. By the way, this tells us that human beings are essentially spiritual beings with a body, not just bodies who have some spiritual interest. No, we are fundamentally made in God's image. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man who he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. First, trees that were pleasing to the eye. Second, trees that were good for food. So some trees were just pleasing to the eye. You know why God made them? Because they looked nice. They had aesthetic value. But some trees had economic value. They were needed for a purpose. They were good for food. That tells me something. That tells me that God is the one who loves and works both form and function. And so for those of us who are different, some of us are right brain, some of us are left brain, God says, I know, me too. 
which means the artist and the engineer both reflect the image of God on the job. So how is our work a reflection of his image? Well, the story continues in verse 15. It says, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to, number one, work it, and number two, take care of it. Or if you're reading a New American Standard, it says cultivate it. So we work because God works. And the way we work, God puts us in a garden. He says, I want you to work it and I want you to cultivate it. Now, don't forget where we are in the story. This is Genesis chapter two. When does sin enter the world? Genesis chapter three, which means work was in the world and stamped on our hearts before sin entered the world. Don't you get what that means? That means work was included in paradise, which must mean that paradise would not be paradise if there was no work. Work is fulfilling to us when we start to see it's one of God's purposes for us. In fact, the Hebrew words translated in verse 15 here that tell us something about the nature of work as worship. The word work there comes from a Hebrew word, abad. Abad elsewhere in the Old Testament is translated serve and worship. The Hebrew word up there for take care of or cultivate, that's shamar. In the Psalms, shamar is translated as revere. You see, abad and shamar are deeply spiritual words. That means that we don't worship our work. That would be idolatry. But we can worship God through our work. And therefore, we have two ditches we've got to avoid. For anybody who wants to live and work fruitfully, uh, at least as a follower of Jesus, they have to avoid one of two ditches that we can fall into quickly. The first ditch is over here, and it's demonizing work. But the second ditch is over here, and it's deifying work. And all of us have to navigate those. You know you're falling into demonizing work when work merely becomes a necessary evil for you. It's nothing more than a means to an end, and we know in our world that that end is, is money. Listen, as I was coming out of college, uh, part of the baby boomer generation, we were told to chase the dream, and the dream was the American dream, which is work hard, live well, and retire as comfortably and as early as you can. In fact, I've said it before here that I was coached in a cultural motto that said, work all you can, can all you get, so that you can sit on your can. And that was the vision. So work was just a means to an end. It was a necessary evil. That's such an unbiblical view of work. Work is so much more than that. But on the other hand, let's don't flip the script and find ourselves falling into the other ditch where we start to deify work, where we're asking work to deliver more than it was ever designed to deliver. Uh, my oldest children are part of the the millennial generation, and their generation was also coached that work is a means to the end, but they, there for them, it wasn't the American dream. The dream was a little refashioned. It was, quote, my personal dream. So work was just a means of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, self-actualization. And they also were given a motto, and the motto in our day is, if you can believe it, you can achieve it. And your work's job is to help you achieve your dreams. But have you noticed, if you've been to work for any longer than at least 40 hours, 
Work tends to not cooperate with your dreams. They sometimes collide with your dreams. And then when that happens, we have to realize we've asked work to over-deliver. There's a truth that we all get from the scriptures in Genesis 2 that tells us, first and foremost, that God works through our work. God works through our work. And when we participate with him, our work starts to become an act of worship to him. And that is true no matter your vocation. That's true whether you're a homemaker or a home builder. That's true whether you're a housekeeper or a missionary. You're an inventory replenishment or brand management. You're a plumber or a pastor. All work can be an act of worship to God. In fact, what that means for the follower of Jesus, and if you've claimed Jesus as the savior and leader of your life, here's your good news. There are no secular jobs for the follower of Jesus. None whatsoever. I mean, we realize that God works through our work, and so therefore, in ordinary ways, God is showing up and doing his thing. I mean, just think about it. Last night, I came to church with my family at Fellowship Mosaic, and Nick Rowland, Cassie's husband, was teaching on the Lord's Prayer. And his assignment was to teach on that little phrase that Jesus taught us to pray, Lord, give us our daily bread. And it struck me this morning as I ate breakfast, God answered that prayer. But he didn't make manna appear as he did for a brief season of time for the Israelites. He did it through a hardworking farmer and a hardworking miller. And then he did it from a, through a whole logistics supply chain that includes everything from manufacturing to trucking to the merchant who bought it, to the merchant who sold it, to the person who cooked it, all to arrive on my plate. God showed up and answered a prayer through tons of daily, ordinary work. There are no secular jobs, just assignments by the living God. So Peter is an executive at a manufacturing plant here in the United States. He's a devout follower of Jesus Christ, and he has a men's group he's been meeting with regularly. And he sits with that men's group one morning, and he says, things are going really well at work. In fact, the factory that we're opening in Mexico, it's on, t- it's on schedule to be on time. It looks really successful, but I'm not satisfied. I mean, I cannot see how it makes a hill of beans that I'm being used by God to make more widgets for our planet. Ironically, he has no idea that in that city in Mexico, Pedro has been working hard doing odd jobs to support his family. He knows that factory is about to complete, and he and his wife have dropped to their knees that morning to ask that God would give him a job in that factory so that more stability could be provided for his family. They say, amen, Pedro gets up, he goes to the interview, he comes home to tell his wife, I got the job. And after a brief hug, they drop to their knees and they thank the God of heaven for providing for them. Peter can't see God working through his work. Pedro can. Who do we want to be? You know, I'm grateful for the job that I have. I happen to believe I have the world's best job. 
I find working as a pastor, in fact, if somebody were asked me what I do for a living, I never tell them I'm in ministry. I say I work as a pastor. It's the most fulfilling and exhausting work I've ever done. But I look at all the jobs that have led up to this. I mean, as a child, I threw a paper route and I mowed lawns. As a high schooler, I was a lifeguard and a pizza cook and a busboy. In college, I was a waiter and a lumberyard hand and a retail worker and even a house painter for a short time. After college, I was an insurance investigator and then I became a marketing director for a number of years. And then that led to me becoming a pastor. Hey, by the way, of all those jobs I just rattled off, which one is ministry? And I hope by now in the message, you're nodding your head going, trick question, Shotsman, and I'm not falling for it. Because they're all ministry. There is no secular work for the follower of Jesus. I've only had one secular job in all of my life. And you know what it was? The job that I do where Jesus Christ is no longer the center of my vision and his glory is no longer the goal for my work. And so Holy Spirit, protect me and protect this church from me ever working as a pastor with a secular vision. And protect my friends from going to their assigned work with a secular vision as well. Martin Luther is attributed as saying that the way a cobbler glorifies God is by making a really good pair of shoes. Tim Keller was asked about that when Tim Keller's a pastor and a writer in Manhattan, New York, and he was doing a symposium on faith and work, and an airline pilot stepped to the mic and said, uh, Mr. Keller, I work as a pilot, and I have very little social interaction with any of my coworkers while I'm doing my job. How can a pilot possibly glorify God on the job? And Tim Keller leaned into his mic and said, well, the first way you could glorify God is by landing the plane safely. And all of God's kids who fly say, amen. Right? We know that our work has greater meaning when we're walking well with God. So ever since I was 19 years old, I've had a friend and a mentor who's had a varied career himself. He's been a teacher. He's been an artist. He's been a writer. I love to read his nonfiction I even love to read his murder mystery uh, novels. Tim Downs has been a good coach for me. And in one of his award-winning nonfiction books, he talks about the day he discovered a biblical, deeper meaning of work. And he says, the impact of this change in mindset is staggering. I no longer have a job or even that modern-day job replacement, a career. I have a mission And my mission is to seek to introduce God into every aspect of my occupation. My calling is to make an impact on my work by fleshing out my Christianity in this profession, at this department, with these coworkers. So instead of seeing leisure as the true source of fulfillment and Sunday as the place for God, my work can become a place for both. My work, no matter how inglorious, is no longer just about money. I have recovered the original meaning of work. And is that not good news for anybody who gets up out of bed and goes to work tomorrow morning? But if that's true and that's the good news, I've got a question for you. Why do we have no restaurants called TGI Monday? 
Because we know that's only half the story. And if you live with half the truth, well, you will fall for anything. The whole truth is that Genesis 2 goes to Genesis chapter 3. And Genesis chapter 3 is the story of when sin enters our world. And notice what happens to our work when sin touches the world. To Adam, God said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of the brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. So it tells us that work is not just created by God. Work is also, at the same time, cursed by God. All work is done through painful toil. Did you hear that? God's promise. I wouldn't script it this way. God scripted it this way as part of the curse. Your dream job will be experienced through painful toil. In fact, when you read that curse, you see that all work will include a measure of futility and frustration and scarcity of resource which means that all work, even the best day of your job, reminds you of sin and separation and suffering from God. So it is foolish for us to show up to our job and ask it to deliver more than it can deliver. Work after the fall is still worship, but work after the fall is also under the curse, which tells us the second twin truth that frames the rails uh, upon which we ride. The first truth is that God works through our work, but the second truth is that our work will also never fully work. Now, the good news is that God still uses cursed work redemptively, meaning that, that when we see the effects of sin on our work, and you've seen that when resources get scarce, when conflict happens in relationships, when you're trying your best and your work's just not working, it's a reminder for you. You don't stake your hope in your work. That's deifying your work. No. You take that hard, painful toil work and you stay dependent upon God. So you look up towards him in dependence, but you also look forward to him knowing that you're not home yet and that heaven is your real home where all work will be satisfying and fulfilling. Yes, we will work in heaven because paradise would not be paradise if it did not include work but our work will work one day. So until then, we can walk by faith and by hope in this work that's still frustrating. Don't you see how these two truths keep us out of the ditches? Knowing that God works through our work keeps us from demonizing work. It's not a necessary evil. It's a God-given assignment. But knowing that our work will never fully work keeps us from deifying work. It's not gonna self-actualize us. No, God's going to grow us up and sanctify us. Why settle for being self-actualized when you can be God-sanctified and grown up in Christ? And then we go, oh, the Genesis story helps give me twin rails to ride on the straight and narrow at the job this week. But what would it mean if we lived that out practically? Well, there's a passage in the New Testament that is so practical and gritty that I hope this week you'll drink from it more. It's Ephesians 6, verse 5 through 9. 
Paul writes this in a slave economy of the Roman Empire where a minimum of one-third of all employees in this economy in Paul's day made their living through through, uh, slavery. And he says, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for what, whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, those over those employed, Treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Now, mentally, I need you to reach over and buckle your seatbelt, because we are going to fly through this text and look at four things that might help us in our work week this week. Well, hopefully, we'll go so fast that you're going to want to scream inside, slow down, and I'm going to say, I know. That's why your discussion guide this week for you to walk through in your community groups is written around Ephesians chapter 6 to process it in community. But the first thing I see here in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 5 is that if we're going to work well on assignment with God, we've got to know who our real boss is. So decades ago, I was in a meeting where the late Howard Hendricks was leading our meeting, and he had flown in that morning to meet with us. And as we were starting, he started with a story and said, I had the most unusual thing happen on the flight here. He said, I got onto the plane, and even though it was early, a man a little bit in front of me had clearly already been drinking too much. And he had several more drinks on the flight. And to quote Dr. Hendricks, he said, and the man started giving the flight attendant a little piece of his mind that clearly he could not afford to lose. And the flight attendant handled it with such professionalism and courtesy, she de-escalated what was a tense situation for all of us. So I chose to be the last person getting off the plane so I could go up and speak to her. And I went up and I said, ma'am, I'd like to have your name so that I can write American Airlines and tell them about the kind of people they have on their staff. And she said, sir, I don't work for American Airlines. I serve the Lord. He's merely assigned me to American Airlines. That's a woman, as a Christ follower, with a biblical vision of work. She knows who her real boss is and serves Jesus willingly. But secondly, I see in the text, in the next two verses, verse 6 and 7, work wholeheartedly. Paul says, even when no one sees you, work wholeheartedly. And he wrote this to the lowest workers on the socioeconomic ladder of his time. So these were men and women who did things like clean up after animals and wash floors and prep meals and and care for kids. And do you know what he says to these people doing the lowest job on the social ladder? He says, you are doing the will of God. That's in the text. You're doing the will of God. So serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving Jesus. So I believe my dream for this body here is that white-collar believers would be the consummate professionals on the job, and that blue-collar believers among us would be the consummate craftsmen at their work sites, and that you would never hear what I hear so often in our culture, which is, ah, I really don't like hiring Christians. They're great people, but they don't do good work. Ouch. No, we glorify God for sure 
in how we treat people and share Jesus with the person in the next cubicle. But you know what else? We glorify God by the way we do that spreadsheet well in the cubicle God assigned us. And may we do both wholeheartedly as unto Jesus. How about the third thing I see? I see it in verse 9. And here I just simply summarize it by saying, don't play favorites. And obviously the verse is given to those who are in management or bosses, and it says, treat people on the team with the same dignity and respect that God asked them to treat us. But I believe because everybody here lives in a service economy, we all have someone who is hired to serve us. My hunch is before the day is out, you will encounter someone who is working their day wage to serve you somehow, and therefore we need to not play favorites. 15 years ago, uh, my oldest daughter who was in college was the first employee hired at the Starbucks right down the street at Pleasant Grove Road. And one morning she had one of those shifts that everybody loves, particularly if you're a college student on a Sunday morning. It starts at 5 a.m., which meant she was out of bed at three something. And she worked her shift and came home after, uh, after she got off and we were out of church and had a meal with us. And she said, Dad, you know what shift everybody at the store hates the most? And I knew what she was gonna say because her mother and I both worked in restaurants through high school and college. I knew she would say Sunday morning. We hated them too. And she said, yeah. I overheard several of the coworkers at the drive-thru window saying, church people are so rude. They're always late and in a hurry and they look down on us. And the other one piped up, yeah, but at least they don't tip well. And she said, it breaks my heart. And then I looked at her and I said, honey, I wonder, I wonder if we knew that Howard Schultz, the founder of Starbucks, was actually making our coffee instead of an 18 or 19-year-old barista. I wonder how we would treat that person. If we would treat Howard Schultz any better than we would treat a college girl like my daughter, then we are people who are playing favorites in a service economy. See, I believe a culture of honor can change our workplaces. I mean, what if this week you were radically committed to honoring everybody who served at whatever level, so committed that you saw those who are administrative professionals or suppliers or contractors or coworkers who are assigned to you and you decided that you would treat them with the kind of honor that you believe that Jesus, the chief servant, deserved. Would that change your work culture? You know it would. And mine as well. How about the fourth thing I see? It comes out of verse eight. Expect God's reward. There's a promise. This is a promise embedded. He, Paul says, you know, you're sold out to the fact that God will reward faithful, wholehearted servants. Why? Because when we serve like that on the job, we look like Jesus, the chief servant. And well, that's what God's in the business of doing in our lives, making us more like Jesus. And this applies, Paul says, to every position. He says, free or slave in the text. You and I would say entry level or executive. When we serve wholeheartedly like that, we know that God rewards 
all of his servants on the job. So to these four truths that are on the screen, will they make your work easy this week? No, because God's already promised through painful toil, get up and go to work tomorrow. But he says, I'll use it, I'll use it, I'll use it. See, it won't make your job easier, but it will make your job more meaningful, and that will change you, and that's where the change needs to happen first. I love when I meet men and women in this body who have this kind of kingdom vision on the job. It's so inspiring to me. It makes it a privilege for me to be in the same church. One of my good friends in the body is Marco Reyes, who has always lived with such a kingdom vision through his job at the Walmart home office. So a couple of weeks ago, I set up a camera and just interviewed him and asked him where this vision came from. Take a listen to his story. I went to John Brown University and I had never been around so many Christians and a lot of people wanted to go be missionaries and do all these things. And I didn't feel that, I didn't feel that. Calling, coming from a Guatemala, you know, a developing country, I saw, you know what, you see our physical need and so you wanna come help, thank you. But I'm here and I see the spiritual need that we get to cover with all these comforts and we get to cover with money and, and distractions and TV and media. But I see it, and I see it in the cubicles, and I see it in the offices, and I see it in the marketplace. And so if everybody goes, who's gonna stay for, for these people? And so I saw my calling very clearly for the business world. I had never been to India at the time, but I thought, I wanna have a factory in India, and I wanna have a factory in Guatemala, and create jobs, and through that, equip people and help them see themselves as more than people have told them they are, and through that, minister to them, and through that, show them the love of God. Many years later, 10, 12 years later, without my even thinking about it, I found myself in a role that I, I said not to at first, and then I prayed about it, and it was very clear that's where God wanted me, so I jumped into it. Thankfully, He let me be obedient. And then a few months into that job, I realized I had this dream of two factories where I could help people. And all of a sudden, I had a job where I Basically, I was working in the largest supply chain out there, working in tens of thousands of factories, empowering, taking care of workers in supply chains. And so my dream was two factories. God's dream was, here's tens of thousands of factories where you can go take care of my people. I don't know anybody, including myself, that on a daily basis, weekly basis, doesn't need some encouragement, some exhortation, some uh, uplifting words, uh, some uh, counsel, all of that. And that's ministry, and that's loving others, and that's loving God, and that is worship, and that is worshiping God. If I'm in a meeting, I may be praying for you, even though you may not know it, but the spiritual realm, like I'm praying for you, or I submit the work or the result of this work to the Lord. I don't think I can worship Him only when I'm at church or only when I'm reading my Bible or only when I'm in fellowship with other believers directly. We're called to do that throughout and work is a big part of that. I see work generally for all of us as our calling to go love God as we do that, uh, be good stewards as we do it, love others as we do it. As part of encouraging, as part of my ministry, but also, I guess, it ministers to myself. I try to remind others of what we're called to do.
whether it's directly, spiritually speaking, or, or indirectly, I go to my team and talk about, hey, this is why we're doing this. You know that spreadsheet you're doing that's really monotonous or really boring or really straight? Let's look up and let's look at the bigger picture. This is what we're doing. This is what we get to do with this time. And often what I'll say is, you know what? Let's say we have one more year in this world. What do you want to look back and, and, and say, we did this and we were good stewards of the role that we had, you know? And you can take that, you know, as a calling to the kingdom work or, or, or just period as an associate in your, in your place of work. How do we point towards stewardship and, and what do we want to do with the time that we have to, to work labor? When we're at work, that's ministry and that's worship. And, and, and how we talk to others and how we do our work with excellence as is unto the Lord and things, things like that. I think that's, that's how I see God inviting me to join him in his work and me hopefully when I'm walking with him responding I find that inspiring as well, don't you? So tomorrow morning, two people from this body, two Christians who love Jesus, will drive to work. They both work in the same department at the same office. They both have the same job. He sees work as a way to earn his paycheck so that he can pay his bills and then save for retirement, which he secretly believes is too far off. She sees work as Sure, a, a way to earn a paycheck so she can provide for her family and to share with those as, as, uh, outside of her family. But she also sees it as a way to show off a little bit more of how God made her on the job, creatively solving problems, or maybe intuitively the way she can collaborate and, and the way she, she adds value to the company or the way she shows and treats uh, her employees with the kind of grace that Jesus would treat them. At the end of the day, tomorrow, it'll be 540, and they'll both climb back in their cars and head back down the freeway. Same boss, same job, both of them tired, but only one of them fulfilled. Which one? She who had a biblical vision of work. Hey, when I asked Marco Reyes, how do you keep that vision fresh and alive? He said, I've got to have constant resources. One of the ones he told me is, is an organization called workmatters.org. It's set up here in Northwest Arkansas that we've used and partnered with. Use their website for their great free resources that are there. But the other one is good biblical reading around the issue of faith and work coming together. And so one of the books I chose for us is The Gospel Goes to Work by Steve Graves. Steve is a member here at Fellowship and wrote a book that's about this thick and you can read it in two sittings and over two evenings. It'd be a fantastic equipping. We have about 75 copies or so left at the resource desk if you'd like to pick up one this morning. Sharpen that vision for work. Hey, would you stand? Lord willing, God will give us the gift of another day tomorrow, which means with that gift, you will be alerted to it through an alarm clock and you'll head off to work. Will you be on assignment and allow God to work through your work and reject the lies that your work needs to deliver salvation or is a necessary evil? Will you join God at work? If we can pray for you this morning, our prayer team is gonna be located in the prayer room. We'd love to meet with you. And as well, one of the joys 
According to Ephesians chapter 4, one of the joys of work is to earn a keep and then begin to give. And so our giving opportunities are located on the screen, and you'll see where our giving boxes are. And then if you live in Bentonville, next Sunday morning at 10 a.m., weather permitting, which it looks to be good, we'll be worshiping outside in Orchards Park if you'd like to join us. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you are the chief servant and we are your people. And we ask that we would serve and work in a way that would please you, glorify you, that as we sang this morning, you would be the center of it all, including our work week this week. What a privilege to be on assignment with you. And all your people say we love you. Amen. Have a great week, church. We'll see you next week.